Uh, as was read for us, we're in Matthew chapter 21, and I uh, hope you have your Bibles there in Matthew chapter uh, 21. Last week, we saw that Jesus has made his formal declaration as king as he entered into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and his first act is a very prophetic act as he goes into that temple complex and he cleanses the temple uh, because this was supposed to be a house of prayer and they had turned it into a den of robbers. After doing this cleansing act, chapter 21 and verse 17 has Jesus leaving Jerusalem for that night. And now it's the next day. And remember that we are in the final week of Jesus' life. We are only days away uh, from his crucifixion, even though we're only in chapter 21. And, And Jesus, in verse 18, is now getting up with his disciples, and he's going to return to Jerusalem again. And what Jesus does here is initiates a discussion and a demonstration about authority. A lot of what we're going to look at really in these next few chapters is a clash about authority, about who ultimately possesses authority, who's ultimately in charge, and who we're supposed to ultimately listen to. And so what Jesus is going to do is begin with a visible parable, if you will. Now, in the scriptures, that wasn't unusual for God's prophets that you have people like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, that they would make prophecies, but then they would do strange things along with those prophecies to give a visual of what God was saying. Some of the amazing, funny things that God would make Ezekiel and Jeremiah do to communicate about what God was trying to do. I always think of Ezekiel laying on his side day after day after day for 390 days, and he, But he's communicating a message. And Jesus is going to communicate a message now in this fig tree parable that he performs. He doesn't tell a parable about a fig tree. What he does is ultimately the parable. Now, I want you to notice that you have there in chapter 21 and verse 18 that it says that Jesus is returning to the city of Jerusalem, and it tells us that Jesus became hungry. And I don't have time, but I do think it is useful as a great reminder as you read about the life of Jesus as we have done in the past two years as our theme, is that the humanity of Jesus comes out time and time again. And here's one of them, is that Jesus as God in the flesh is not impervious but simply says he's hungry. He's looking to eat. And this is going to lend an opportunity at this moment because in verse 19, he sees a fig tree that's along the, the road here as they're traveling into Jerusalem. And it says it only has leaves, but nothing else on it. Now, it's easy to lose track and go, this is a really weird story that was just read for us that Jesus sees a fig tree because he's hungry and only has leaves and there's not any figs on it. And he's really mad that it doesn't have fruit. So he kills the fig tree and there's your story. We back up a little bit. In the scriptures, two different plants were frequently tied symbolically to represent the nation of Israel. 
One of them is a vine. That's used an awful lot. You see that like in Isaiah 5 as God pictures him planting Israel like this choice vine. And that was the power of Jesus in John 15 coming in and saying, I'm the true vine. He's he's making a really big statement there. And and here, another one is a fig tree. And if you have a bulletin, I put all those scriptures in the bulletin. So you don't have to break your hand right now trying to write all those down. But fig trees frequently did represent Israel as well. In fact, prosperity in Israel was described as everybody living under their own vine and fig tree. That was very common terminology of Fig tree and vine doing well means Israel is doing well. And it was a symbolism of that at that moment. And so when Jesus encounters this fig tree, I want you to think about what he's seeing. Here is this fig tree and the leaves are out, which is an indication of fruitfulness. And yet as he gets up to the fig tree, there's no fruit whatsoever on it. There's a a, a symbolism of indicating It pretends to have fruit. It makes you think it's fruitful. But upon closer examination, there's nothing there. It's absolutely empty. And this represents well the situation that Jesus is dealing with in Jerusalem. Remember, as we looked at last week, Jesus has come in Jerusalem. Here's all the religious leaders. Rather than it being a place to draw people to God... It's become a place that is essentially a circus, a carnival. They're making money off of people. They're not drawing people closer to God. It's really a den of robbers, which Jeremiah used symbolically to say, you hypocritically look clean and right before God, but inside is all kinds of immorality and filth. And notice the fig tree has that same representation. It looks the part that looks like a healthy fig tree. But upon closer examination, it turns out Israel is not. And that's what Jesus is doing here in verse 19 when when he says, May no fruit ever come from you again. And at once this fig tree withered. There's a symbolism in this curse that this isn't Jesus mad because he didn't get breakfast this morning. That has nothing to do with what's happening. This is a statement to say, Jerusalem and the nation are going to suddenly fall. They are worthy of judgment. The hypocrisy is over. The show is done. You have put on the veneer, but upon closer examination, it is all false. And now it is worthy of a judgment. And so ultimately, this fig tree represents that. And I think that is the the imagery that you have in verses 20 through 22. Because notice in verse 20, the disciples saw it and they marveled and said, how did the fig tree wither at once? All right. I want you to think about this question for a minute. Jesus has been with these disciples for at least three years. We're in the final week of Jesus' life. And one way to read this is the disciples are amazed that Jesus has the power to make a fig tree wither suddenly. Now, I scratch my head at that possibility because at this point, they've seen Jesus heal diseases, cast out unclean spirits and raise people from the dead. I'm not so sure that they would have been surprised that Jesus had the power to wither a fig tree. I would have put that on the 
easy level chart after I'd seen all the other things that Jesus had done. You feed 5,000 plus women and children out of just a few loaves and fish. Wither a fig tree? Not hard. I think instead the disciples are amazed at the symbolism. They understand what Jesus is doing right here with the fig tree representing Israel. And Jesus says, no more fruits ever going to come out of you again. And the tree just withers at that moment. The suddenness that Israel is going to be judged and they're going to be judged quickly and they're going to be judged soon, I think really throws them for a loop. They are amazed. How could this possibly be? It'll be something that we will look at in a few weeks when we get to Matthew 24. I'm trying to still figure out how to do Matthew 24 with you. I don't know yet. We'll, we'll, we'll see what's going to happen with that. I'm not sure. Sunday morning, Sunday night, I don't know. That's, that's, that's thick. <laughs> so we'll figure that out. I'm still working that one out. But this connects to that. But the disciples are going to be very amazed at the idea that God is going to destroy his holy city and his holy temple. How could that be? And they're amazed at what this symbolism means. And I want you to notice how Jesus answers that. In verse 21, he tells them, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but you will even say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and it will happen. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute, like run your mind through the book of Acts for a minute. Do you ever see the disciples walking around, burning up fig trees and casting mountains into seas? No. Symbolism again. What's he telling them? Don't be amazed because you're going to make the same kinds of declarations. You know, these apostles are going to carry the mantle of Jesus as Acts 1 indicates that here are the disciples and they're going to go and they're going to preach and they're going to preach messages of judgment too. And they're going to be proclaiming the fall of nations and they're going to describe the judgment of of, of Jerusalem as well. In fact, that's why Stephen gets stoned in Acts chapter 8 is proclaiming the fall of of the, the temple and declaring to them their wickedness. And so what you have Jesus doing is continuing to extend like what we saw in Matthew chapter 16. You are going to have my authority to make such declarations. Remember Matthew 16, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This authority to proclaim the will and authority of God is vested in these apostles. And so this is the very idea. In fact, saying to this mountain in verse 21 would be looking at the mountain that they are walking to Zion, Jerusalem. And mountains were frequently used as a symbol of authorities and powers You're going to be carrying on my work. You're going to have my authority for this as well. Now, that's just a precursor to what's ultimately happening. That's the visual to the teaching that's going to happen now in this next next paragraph. And possessing the authority of Jesus, what we're going to notice is this next paragraph, and really, ultimately, this whole chapter that we're going to look at the next few weeks is all about the authority of Jesus and the challenging of it. Because listen to what happens as soon as they get into the temple on day two in verse 23. 
And when they entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? This is all about this authority. So remember what he what he did yesterday, the day before he went to the temple and he cleansed it, called it a den of robbers. Now he comes back in, and I don't wouldn't imagine that verse 23, when it says he's in the temple complex teaching, that he wasn't changing the message at all, but was telling them about the future judgments that were going to come because this was a den of robbers. And I want you to notice that the authorities are not happy with that. They say, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? To put that in our words, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Who says you get to teach the things you're teaching and say the things that you're saying? Who says that we are wrong and you're right? Who says that we're the defiled and you're the holy one? Who do you think you are? What authority do you have to say things like this? Now, I think it is interesting how Jesus responds to their questioning. Because I want you to notice Jesus does not say in verse 24, that is a ridiculous question. And I can do whatever I want to do and I don't need authority for anything. I think it is interesting that Jesus is going to set up a story here in which he will prove his authority. Asking about authority is not a ridiculous question, but is actually the right question. Who gave you the authority to teach what you're teaching and say what you're saying and do what you are doing? And I want you to notice how Jesus responds to this, and then we'll kind of break down this question. Jesus answered them, verse 24, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. Where did it come from? <laughs> I would have loved to be there at that scene, just dropping that question. You know John and his ministry? Oh yeah, we, we know about John. Where'd that come from? Did it come from heaven? Or did it come from human origin? Oh, that's a great question. And you will notice why it's a good question, because it says they discussed among themselves saying, if we say it's from heaven, then he will say, why did you not believe him? Because remember what John's ministry was. Um, the religious leaders and Pharisees start coming to, Jesus, uh, to John and John goes, uh, brood of vipers who warned you of the wrath to come. <laughs> Uh, the axe is laid at the root of the tree and uh, you're about to be baptized by fire uh, because you guys are full of wickedness. And so if we say John's ministry was from heaven, then the obvious question is, why didn't you follow him and listen to him? Why didn't you repent? Because John's running around Judea saying, repent, everybody. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 26, but if we say from man... We are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. And then I'll, I'll, I'll do this parenthesis. And they were right. <laughs> he was a prophet. 
So if we say he's not from heaven, we've got a problem because everybody knows he's from heaven. Everybody knows he was sent from God. Everybody knows that he was a prophet. So if we say he's a prophet, then we are putting ourselves in jeopardy for not obeying, repenting, and listening to him. And if we say he's not a prophet, then the whole crowd's going to go, you guys can't be religious leaders. Are you crazy? Of course he's from God. Verse 27. So they answered, We don't know. (laughs) We'll talk about that in a minute. But notice when Jesus goes, well, then I'm not going to answer your question. If if you can't be more honest than that, this discussion's going nowhere quick. (laughs) If you can't determine where John's baptism came from, then this isn't going to work out well. This question about authority is a very important question and Jesus is willing to prove where he gets his authority that you can imagine how this was going to go is is John's ministry is from heaven and so is mine uh, he was pointing to me everything that he said was about what I was coming to do and so it would have been easy to prove his authority if they would have admitted who John was and where his ministry ultimately came from And what Jesus, I think, is doing is so important in challenging these religious leaders about authority. If Jesus is the Lord, then it is self-evident that you have to look to him for authority. That's just like definition 101, right? If he's God, you got to listen to him. If he's not God, you don't have to listen to him. This is what this whole clash is right now. He's cleansing the temple and saying, hey, man, by the way, this is my father's house. Like, you know, son of God right here. Uh, I'm the Lord. And therefore, that's my authority. You need to listen to what I have to say. The problem is they think they're the authority. They think they're in charge. They think they can decide what we do and what we not do, how we're going to worship, how we're going to approach God. So if we want to turn the temple into a den of robbers, we can do that because we have the authority. And the whole question that is colliding right now is, do you think, religious leaders, that you are the absolute authority and you decide? Or is it God? Or to put the question another way. Do we have to ask, what does God say about fill in the blank? Whatever the rest of that question is that you have. Do we have to check in with God and say, God, how I live my life, I need to look to what you say. And God, how we come together and worship, I have to look at what you say. And how we treat things and what we teach has to be what he says. Do we have to do that? Or do we just get to do whatever we want to do and say what we want to say and teach what we want to teach and practice what we want to practice? It is interesting to think about that Jesus is walking into this scene where you have this religious group and these religious leaders. And they would all think that they're doing right, teaching right. And Jesus is absolutely kind of getting right at them and saying, you aren't looking to God As your ultimate authority. You're not looking to him. Because if God is God. Then we must find out what he wants. Now. I hope as I put on the screen. That's like a 
total like no-brainer self-evident, right? If God is God, then we got to do what God says. I mean, that, you know, let's stand and sing, right? This is okay, you know. But that's not what everybody thinks, you understand, right? <laughs> so many think, yeah, God is God, and that means I can do whatever I want to do. I'm the authority. I can decide how I want to approach God. I'll decide what I agree with in the scriptures and which ones I'll follow and which ones I don't like and won't follow. I'll decide how we'll worship. I'll decide what we'll teach. I'll go with what I like. Have you ever wondered why there's so many religious groups who are all disagreeable and don't agree on much of anything and there's all this chaos out there and religious noise? I will tell you one of the reasons why is because everybody says God is God, but they don't do what God says. They would. I, I just imagine if I went up to the religious leaders, if we go in the first century, walk up to the temple complex, walk in and go, do you believe we have to do what God says? I don't think they would have said no. They would have said, of course we do. We need to worship God. We need to serve God. We need to follow God. God's the ultimate authority. And you understand how Jesus is going, then why don't you do it? Why do you make yourself the ultimate authority? Authority, And I want you to see that the answer is given. Go to verse 27. After Jesus gives his question about John. And I, I, I again, visualize this. <laughs> you have to love that they then get together. And it says there in verse 25, they discussed it amongst themselves. I want to see this scene. So Jesus goes, okay, it's John. It's his ministry from heaven. Is he a prophet of God or is it, is it human origin? The religious leaders all get together and go, okay, what are we going to say, guys? All right, if we say heaven, we've got a problem. And if we say men, we've got a problem. So let's say we don't know. They come back out, we don't know. I, I, there, everybody there had to be like, you've got to be kidding me, right? Here's why. Because the problem is dishonesty. At the end of the day, you are being dishonest. Here's what I mean. You say God's the authority. But when challenged about that, you dance around and go, ah, well, we don't know. Well, here's what God said. Yeah, I know that's what God, but, you know, we don't know. That's hard. Maybe that, I don't know what to say about that. Because the dishonesty comes because we don't want to be challenged in our life. So I want to ask a question that I'm going to work with for the rest of this lesson. Just a few minutes left. Do you want Jesus to be the authority for your life? Or do you want you to be the authority of your life? Now, don't answer this question too quickly. Because I know I've got a hundred and whatever people in here going, oh yes, we all want Jesus to be the authority of our life. Take that answer back real quick. Hold on. And let's drill down just like Jesus is drilling down with them. 
Do we really want to do what Jesus says to do for our life? Do we really want to follow the teachings that he's given us? Do we really want to worship him the way that he says? Don't answer this question too quickly. Because these religious leaders would say, yes, we want God as the authority of our life. But they were self-deceived. They refused to see that God was not their authority. And what's amazing is Jesus' question is intending to reveal to them that God is not their authority. Because if God was your authority, you would have just taken the consequences and go, you're right, John is from heaven. We should have listened to him. And I repent because I didn't listen to him. But that's not what they want to do. They lacked the integrity and honesty to be truthful about their spiritual condition. And friends, I think that is the convicting part of what Jesus is doing right here. Is he is trying to get them to be honest about their spiritual condition. With a brilliant question. A question that just puts it right to them. You say that God is the God of your life. But I'm going to try to ask you a question to see if that's really true. Because friends, you know what the great temptation is? It's the temptation that reaches all the way back to the very beginning. Our great temptation is to not listen to God's authority, but to make ourselves the authority. Before you get even into the temptation, think about how Satan sets the table in Genesis 3 with that. First words, Genesis 3. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? Now notice what Satan is doing. Is God the authority of your life or are you? Who's in charge? Did God really say you have to do something? Crazy God. You're in charge. You're the boss. You're number one. You do you. You follow your heart. You're the best. And you need to do what's right. And so how could God say something like that to you? That's how this is getting framed. And already Eve is on the defensive. Oh, no, he didn't really say that. You know, because the question is ultimately authority. Our great temptation is that we will be the final authority. And that's what they're doing. That's the dishonesty that's happening right here. They asked Jesus... Who do you think you are? Where's your authority? And Jesus responds with a question to show them. You don't really care about the authority of God. You just want to do what you want to do. You want to keep your authority. That's why that's the only reason you would answer to Jesus question. I don't know. (laughs) We don't know where John's ministry came from. We refuse to step into it at all. So we will not step into that trap. And instead we will just claim, I don't know. And friends, how many times do we do that 
with the things of God that we don't like? Well, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if that's right or not. I don't know. You know, maybe that's okay. Maybe it's okay we do those things. Yeah, I don't know. You know, this thing can be hard sometimes. I had a great question this morning before before uh, class. You know, what do you do if somebody says, "Hey, the whole Bible's about all your interpretation. You just you, everybody just makes up their own stuff." Well, that's the whole temptation right here. Did God say something and it mean it? Or are you the ultimate authority and you get to bend it to mean whatever you want it to mean? That you come to the word of God and you give the answer of the Pharisees and the chief priests and the elders here and go, we don't know. You know, we don't really like that one. So we don't know. Let's just all carry on and do what we want to do because we don't know. I think about this temptation because you can find this issue in an awful lot of people. There was a moment as Job in the book of Job is dealing with his difficulties and suffering and he feels that he is wrongly being treated and his friends have incorrectly said that he is full of sin and done wrong. And Job has said some things that are somewhat out of bounds by the time you get toward the end of the book about God. And I love how God frames it in that same authority question. Who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? <laughs> I think that would be applicable to where Jesus is standing at that moment. Who is the, you know, these people who think they can approach God and say, I am the ultimate authority. I'm in charge. I will do what I want to do. I can't imagine telling God that. So here's the problem. And this is what I'm going to end on. I asked at the beginning and I said, don't answer too fast. Is Jesus truly the ultimate authority in our lives? That for everything we do, for the decisions that we make in our lives as individuals, for the choices that we make as a family and the things that we do as a group, as the people of God, are we looking to God for his authority? Because it matters. If he's God, then it is self-evident that I need to find out from him what I must do. If he's not God, then I don't need that at all. But if we in this room all say Jesus is Lord, he is the son of God, that we confess him, then the question is, are we pretending? Are we like these people? We don't know. Or will you give your life to Jesus? And the areas in your life that you want to say, I don't know when Jesus exposes it, you will actually give to him and change. It is very tempting to say that Jesus is the Lord of our lives and hold this area in our hearts where we do what we want to do 
and we say what we want to say and we live how we want to live and we hide it over here in the corner and everybody sees the, ah, Jesus is Lord. But when put to the test, are we just pretending like these people were? Or is it for real? Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we know that your son came to this earth, declared himself to be God and Savior and proved it by raising from the dead. And Lord, after his resurrection, he strongly proclaimed that all authority on heaven and on earth had been given to him. And Lord, I pray that you would cause each of us to consider our hearts, to look at the fruit of our lives, to carefully examine ourselves to see if he truly is the Lord and the authority over our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would convict our hearts if there are areas that we have been holding back, Areas in our heart where we're doing what we want to do and saying what we want to say and living how we want to live. Areas where we are ignoring your truth. Areas where we may be proclaiming ignorance just to get out of what you have taught us to do. And Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for as often as we put ourselves back on the throne. Lord, it is a daily fight. As all of our flesh rises up and we want to be Lord of our lives and be in charge of our ways and do what we want to do, God, forgive us for how many times we live our lives this way. Forgive us for how often we make you secondary, how often we make ourselves preeminent. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our hearts to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that we would see you as the ultimate authority in our lives. Lord, help us to see that authority matters. And give us hearts to submit to your authority with all our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a, it's a great challenge in our day and time especially. Because we live in a time that says, submit to no one, yield to no one. You're in charge. And you just kind of watch it in culture and society grow and grow that everybody is, is, is their own God now. And we have to be warned to not follow into those trappings, but to submit our lives completely to Jesus with all of our heart, to turn away from sin and to follow him faithfully. If you're in a position right now where you are looking at your life And you realize that there are areas in your life that you have not given to God. Would you let us help you deal with that? At minimum, we would love to pray for you and to help you to overcome that. And even more so, we would love to come alongside of you if you'd let us and tell us how we can help you walk with him better. To be an encouragement to you to move away from those temptations and sins and to be a a faithful follower of Jesus going forward. If you have not been immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, that is your start point with God, to turn away from sin and be a follower of him 
and to serve him faithfully the rest of your days. We would love to help you do that as well. If we can help you in any way, you'd be welcome to talk to me afterward, talk to Dan afterward, talk to anybody next to you afterward because you have a wonderful family here of people who care about you or you can come forward while we stand and while we sing.